Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. Two members of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And uh, you've heard me speak over the last several weeks with Inspector Stephen Glode, who is a brave guy. He's an active white shirt, so he's an officer within the RCMP. And Inspector Glode is just not willing to accept what continues to happen. The management style or the management uh, approach to the men and the women within the RCMP. And uh, with me as well is Corporal Patrick Bouchard. Corporal Bouchard is stationed in New Brunswick. And uh, he was in Moncton on June the 4th, 2014, on the day the three RCMP officers were murdered by that's sadistic uh, Justin Bork. And um, they didn't have the, the carbines, they didn't have the, the weapons they needed to fight back with because, as they say, and they off- members of the RCMP have said for some time, the force is all about image, and uh, it's m- more about image than it is about the people who put their lives on the line each and every day. So, gentlemen, uh, Inspector Steve Glode, thank you for coming back on the show, sir. Thank you, Roy, and it's an honor to be here, especially with Pat today, because uh, it takes a lot of courage for the men and women to speak up like that, so I take my hat off to Pat, and thank you. Corporal Bouchard, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, Steve, let me start with this, if we could. When we last spoke a week ago, you were planning to demonstrate outside the office of the Federal Public Safety Minister, Ralph Goodale, this past Friday. I know that there's been some correspondence from Mr. Goodale. Can you tell us about what you did on Friday and then share with us what the correspondence was about? Yeah, absolutely. On Friday, uh, physically on location, there were 12 to 14 people, retired members, uh, civilians, people alike that came out to show support. Um, we held up signs, and if you if you like, say, picketed uh, Ralph Goodale's office in an attempt to to recognize our concerns, which I had corresponded with Mr. Goodale about prior to this, about the way members are being treated, employees are being treated in the force. Um, Mr. Goodale had sent me an email the day before and said he would not meet with me as a result of my own personal human rights complaint that I have against the force, which, Roy, is completely different than the issues, not completely different, but didn't involve the issues I wanted to speak to Ralph about, because what I want to talk to Ralph about are the overall arching issues affecting our employees. I told Mr. Goodale I would drop my personal human rights complaint if he would just hear me out. He chose to ignore me. Instead, what they did to offset our demonstration was uh, Mr. Goodale and uh, Acting Commissioner DeBow got together and decided to do an announcement at Depot on the same date and roughly the same time. And a couple days before our announcement, they sent out these beautiful invitations to the media all across Regina in an attempt to gather them there. And when the media went, there was a horse and pony show that lasted, you know, 
couple hours, if you will, and uh, and they strategically played that move in, in an attempt to keep media away from covering us. And uh, only one media from CBC showed up, and uh, that was wonderful to see them. But uh, definitely it was a, a chess move made uh, by Ralph and Assistant Commissioner DeVoe, and, uh, yeah, to divert attention. Well, well, clearly you made an impression on them. Clearly they were aware of what they were doing, because you have the personal response from the minister, and I read what he sent to you, yeah. and it was uh, it was a political form letter, a form response, and they took advantage of uh, the human rights complaint that you lodged, and they used that uh, to argue that they can't meet with you. I, I, I just don't see the connection between the two, frankly, Steve, but um, they are what they are, and they do what they do. Uh, Corporal Bouchard... Yeah. <sighs> When you look at the, the, the RCMP, you've been with the force for a lot of years, right? Fifteen, yeah. Okay. And you had a lot to say after Moncton. You had a lot to say after the uh, appearance by the former commissioner uh, in the inquiry into what would, had happened, and you weren't happy with what he said. Um, what, what, and, the, and then the, then the, they challenged you, the, uh, the brass of the RCMP challenged you and what's, what's this about, uh, how do we tie what happened in Moncton together with what needs to be done and isn't being done within the RCMP? Well, in my opinion, the connection is, is very simple is, is we need leadership. We need ethical leadership in the RCMP. And not everybody has, uh, I'll, I'll coin a phrase from you, has the testicular fortitude, like Steve, to speak out when they're in the commission ranks. What happened in Moncton is that the leadership of the RCMP dropped the ball. They dropped the ball for years, they put money ahead of our safety, and they were found guilty in court of that. Now, sentencing is different. That's something that is out of our hands, and I don't think any amount of money will be acceptable to to, to explain or to, to, to judge what happened. However, there is no following that. You know, they were found guilty, and, and let's, let's move on. But there's no moving on. There is no clear plan from the leadership of the RCMP to move forward uh, in our in our human resources crisis, in our equipment crisis, in our just about every issue that we have, there is no clear plan to move forward. And make no mistake, the RCMP currently is in crisis. No organization anywhere in the world has ever been managed out of a crisis. They have always been led out of a crisis. And we are seriously lacking in leadership right now. Do you think, and I hesitate to ask this question, but I think it's important to ask, do you think your your friends, the three members of the RCMP who lost their lives on the 4th of June 2014, do you think that if if the carbines that, or that, that you should have had, the weapons you should have had, had been available, do you think that had the, had the management of the RCMP been doing what it should have been doing, do you think your friends could very well be alive today? There's, there's no doubt in my mind that the outcome would have been different. Um, this, this person that decided to, to do this, 
I mean, I'm not going to put his decisions on the shoulders of the RCMP. Um, his decisions were his own, and he decided to do what he did. However, they did not have the proper tools to respond. And the first members that were on scene testified during the labor code trial that if they would have had that tool, which is the carbine, they would have ended it right there. It's not rocket science. Even when you play with children that play with a, a Nerf gun, if you put two Nerf guns on the table, right, the children, even though they have no tactical experience whatsoever, will pick the bigger gun if they want to play with their friends and have a pretend gunfight. It's not rocket science. The RCMP just dropped the ball. Study after study after study, other police forces said, yeah, you guys need this right now. Even the RCMP members, high brass before, said, yeah, we need this right now. Yet, they decided to put money ahead of our safety, and my friends died because of it. Would they all have survived? I don't know. But would they have had a chance to fight back? 100%. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, just before I get back to my guests, I'm looking at uh, uh, a page from the Salmon Arm Observer in British Columbia, and it shows... Retired RCMP member Don Matheson standing outside the detachment in Vernon. And this is in November. He's holding up a, a, a sign, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Travesty of justice, what leadership, core values intimidation, uh, cover-ups, post-traumatic stress disorders, uniform members as scapegoats, systemic culture, toxic low pay, higher ranks, no backbone, uh, disgraceful conduct, and the story begins with these words, lack of leadership, intimidation, cover-ups, uniform members of scapegoats, a toxic systemic culture, sexual harassment, lack of discipline, and bullying. Those are some of the major problems that former officer Don Matheson of Enderby believes exist at the top levels of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And these problems adorn the A-side of his one-man protest sign. The uh, protest is about what's going on inside the RCMP, said Matheson, 75, who served his entire 12-year RCMP career in Alberta. It's not what the public's creating against the members. It's what the higher ranks and federal government are doing to the members inside the force. It's all internal. Thank you, Mr. Matheson, for making me aware of what you're doing. Uh, back to Inspector Stephen Glode and Corporal Patrick Bouchard. Gentlemen, what, uh, what I just read, it sounds like the list that I've been hearing, particularly from you, Stephen. Well, you know, Roy, uh, absolutely. Um, you, you look at what Pat just said. You know, they're hoping people like Pat or myself or even Don retired or Toya or many, many others, they're hoping that we go away because that's how the force does business. They ignore, ignore, ignore. Look at the carbines. They ignored it, ignored it. Oh, hopefully it'll go away. Okay, a little bad press, and then we get a fine at the end. You know what sickens me is not one senior manager was held accountable for that, Roy. They continue, and I'm talking to senior management, they, they continue to retire like the commissioner or promote. And meanwhile, we have three families that lost loved ones, and we had another two members that were wounded that day, and their lives will never be the same. The real issues start within our own walls, and they fester and they grow here, unfettered and even nurtured by us as senior managers, and it's time for that to change. Yeah. Uh, Corporal Bouchard, with the, as far as the new commissioner is concerned, how worried are you that it's going to be another case of a manager being uh, put in place instead of a leader? Uh, it's, it's whoever they're picking from right now, unless they go outside the RCMP, it was promoted under the Bob Paulson School of Management. 
uh, I don't see any difference uh, any difference c- coming forward right now. What we need is somebody that the membership can get behind and trust because there's no trust right now. In our in our functions every day, we are used to battling the threats from outside. Um, you know, in, in our everyday duties, there is an inherent danger with policing, and we're used to that, and we're trained for that, to look at what's coming from outside. But when you have to fight from within as well, that's what's grinding down members. That's what's hurting us in the long run is how we treat our members and how little trust there is from the rank and file towards senior management. The the list that they have to pick from, if they pick from the current list, there's not going to be any change. They're either unable or unwilling to change. That's the issue we have right now. So I just tweeted a couple of minutes ago, RCMP Inspector Stephen Glode and Corporal Patrick Bouchard are leaders within an organization in need of... Uh, if if you don't have the leadership at the top, if that's not immediately done, and I'm sorry to say we just have over a minute left, uh, Inspector Glode, what what's the prognosis? It's not a lack of the internal, uh, external support, Roy. Like you said, it is a lack of integrity, values, and support from within, from supervisors and senior managers in particular on things like uh, mental health issues or or, you know, our internal structure is broken, Roy. One person cannot hold so much power as a commissioner. We need civilian oversight. We need... I'm going to tell you everything that 15 reports have told the federal government in the last 10 years. And it's just consistent with that. Like Don signed, exactly. Those are the issues, you know? Okay. We need to structure, restructure ourselves. Well, I admire you both because you're risking risking your careers and... and, and in certain ways, by doing what you're doing, but you're doing it for the, the right reasons and for the men and the women you serve with. So our hats off to you. Stephen Glode, Inspector, and Corporal Patrick Bouchard, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. We'll talk and, to you again. And, and thanks, Roy. And if I can say one thing quick, I know Real, they came after Pat last time. Yeah. Come after me, not Pat. I'm the senior guy. Thank okay. you. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks Bye-bye. very much. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Study um, released earlier this week, and Canadian military veterans have a significantly higher, quote-unquote, risk of dying by suicide. Why is that? Are they being taken care of by their governmental masters? I will never forget the story of the um, Calgary member of of the uh, the military who um, took her own life on Christmas Day about, I think it was four years ago. And I spoke with her husband on the air, and he told us the story of receiving a letter from Veterans Affairs Canada demanding repayment of six days of his wife's pension payment or disability payment um, because she died on the 25th of December and they'd written a check for the whole month. So since she hadn't lived the last six days of the month, the government wanted that money back 
Yeah. So now if we have two federal governments, two prime ministers, Stephen Harper, Justin Trudeau, who have sequentially argued that there is no social contract between the federal government and the men and women of the armed forces. And the Equitas Society challenged that situation and that reality, that position in court. And uh, this week, well, let me read you what came out of the uh, Veterans Affairs Canada because they couldn't stop themselves from gloating. The Honorable Seamus O'Regan, Minister of Veterans Affairs and Associate Minister of National Defense, what's this guy know about the Army or the military, issued the following statement today regarding a ruling by the British Columbia Court of Appeal. Today, the British Columbia Court of Appeal struck the plaintiff's statement of claim in the case Scott et al. versus Attorney General of Canada. The court agreed that the statement of claim does not contain a reasonable cause of action. Over the past two years, quote, we have made good progress in addressing some very, some very legitimate concerns, including financial security and other supports for veterans and their families. Then goes on to say, quote, previous governments, it has to be political, previous governments have created a patchwork of policies and benefits that made it more complicated for veterans to get the support they need when they need it. We're changing that. And finally, I'll just read this line. We remain committed to a lifelong benefit option for ill and injured veterans, and we will finalize a benefit for life option for pension program for ill and injured veterans. Here's the critical word, soon. Mark Birchall is the president of the Equitas Society. Don Sorokin is the lawyer who handled the case pro bono for the Equitas Society in, uh, in British Columbia. Gentlemen, thank you for the time. Good to have you back on the program. Great to be Always with you, Roy. Uh, Mark, let me start with this. So the study this week reveals that Canadian military veterans have a significantly higher risk of dying by suicide. Where does that statement fit into the Equitas Society argument before the B.C. Court of Appeal? Well, it fits right. Uh, it, it sort of fits together with it. I mean, our our uh, court case is about uh, two things, reinstating lifelong pensions, which is extremely frustrating for uh, all vets. And then the second part is establishing that there is a military covenant or a social covenant that exists between the people of Canada and uh, Canada's war veterans. And the, the reason that's so necessary is because war veterans are not being treated with the respect by government or by veteran affairs that uh, that they sh- should be treated with. And they, ex- they endure a great deal of frustration in their dealings with veteran affairs because of all the complex... Uh, uh, <clears throat> benefits and and criteria for qualifying for those benefits that they have to they have to pass through, and there's a culture at Veteran Affairs of uh, which is very much like a uh, life insurance company of rejection and denial. So basically, veterans have to first of all figure out how to navigate their way through the complexities of Veteran Affairs, and then secondly, <laughs> they meet with a resistant. Uh, veteran affairs in, in terms of uh, helping them providing the service that they're actually there to provide. Well, but you know the military expert, uh, Seamus O'Regan, has he said he's going to fix things soon. Well, that's what they say, and uh, I've heard that a number of places. The uh, local MP here, uh, Liberal MP, Ken Hardy, just re- recently posted on Facebook the lifelong pensions veterans' pensions will return shortly. Seamus O'Regan said during a committee meeting of uh, Veteran Affairs that uh, it'll be, there will be an announcement on what they call a pension option before Christmas. 
the word that's creating some concern for us is the word option, because when Prime Minister Trudeau was campaigning to be Prime Minister, he just outright promised to reinstate lifelong pensions. There was no mention of the word option, but now they've in the the first we saw of the word option was in the mandate letter to Kent Hare. Mm. Yeah, uh, Don Sorokin, the case heard by the B.C. Court of Appeal uh, was heard by the B.C. Court of Appeal because a B.C. Supreme Court justice in 2014 decided completely opposite to the Court of Appeal's decision. So what's, how do you explain that, and, and what's ahead now? What, what are the options that are available using the word option? What are the, what are the options available to the Equitas Society? Don? Don, are you there? Don Sorokin. Okay, call him back, please. Uh, so let me put it to, put it to you, uh, Mark. So how do you see this? You had a BC Court of um, Supreme Court justice ruling in 2014 that this was a legitimate case to go forward with, and the Court of Appeal decides no. How do you put those two together? I'm, I'm sure you talked with Mr. Sorokin about it. Oh yes, we talked, like, and and with the representative plaintiff. So, in answer to your question, your first, there's a couple of questions in there. So the first one is, you know, what now? Um, we have we have two roads, uh, two options that we can pursue. One is to seek leave to appeal to the Supreme Court. So that's in discussion with the representative plaintiffs between uh, the legal team and the representative plaintiffs right now. And the other is to um, to work through politicians to to help them <laughs> legislate a law that uh, that in fact follows through and does what they say they believe. Because in 2015, Finn Donnelly, an NDP MP from BC, put forward a motion uh, for a social covenant, which was unanimously voted for by all members of parliament um, but the government lawyers said that there is no basis in law for that that simply expresses the parliamentarians sentiments okay we have Don Sorokin back so Don if you could give us your your sense of why this turnaround by the BC Court of Appeal over what the uh, the the justice on the uh, Supreme Court of British Columbia decided in uh, 2014. Well, the judgment that we've got from the British Columbia Court of Appeal is, I could call it a 1970s judgment. It's a judgment that says, analyzes which of the levels of government, the provincial government or the federal government, has legislative authority, and then it says that that uh, level of government can do what they want to the citizenry. Uh, it, I, I, people, uh, there was a headline saying this was a devastating loss, but I don't treat it as a devastating loss. I just treat it as the normal uh, challenges that you face when you try to establish rights. It's no different than in 1972. I watched the Calder and the Queen case in British Columbia dealing with Aboriginal rights, and uh, the uh, the courts there said there were no such things as Aboriginal rights, and if there ever had been, they'd been abolished. So we fa- we're facing that same level of, uh, of difficulty. What makes me uh, uh, feel confident is that what the, the grounds that were relied upon by the British Columbia Court of Appeal and, were, and, 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 and this Liberal government asked its lawyers to go back and argue 
are completely contrary to the positions that every political party has taken. They say there is no social covenant. There's the unanimous resolution of Parliament saying there is a social covenant. The court said that uh, the, so- the theory of a social covenant advanced by us was based on single, pers- single politician speeches. The social covenant was uh, an issue, or was in fact, in all of the Commonwealth of Nations, or the empires was called then. It wasn't one single politician that was saying it. It was all the politicians that were needing to have a citizen's army created to fight the First World War. So I, I, I proceed for when I, when I see a judgment that's at odds with the political positions that are taken, and at odds with the, ju- the you know fundamental justice. There, there's no justice for treating uh, our, our uh, soldiers less well than the normal citizen. Yeah, or less well than they treated Omar Carter. Or let Omar Carter's a, a, a different issue, and then I, oh, I, I agree with you. But uh, but what what I you know, Dan Scott, the lead plaintiff, was the victim of criminal negligence by a training officer in a, in a training accident in Afghanistan. In any other context, if you were uh, injured by criminal negligence, you'd have a right to sue your government. His judgments would have been a close to a million dollars, and he gets a paltry sum. And then, and then he, and you, you started off the show talking about suicides. I, you know, the report that you have is a sanitized report. It, it talks about numbers. It talks about statistics, and even then, we don't even have all the statistics. We don't have all of the all of the uh, reservists, for example, aren't included in the figure. A friend of mine is uh, the uh, the uh, lawyer in this, Australia. That's the commander of the reserves in Australia. They lost more in suicides than they did after the war in Afghanistan than they did in battle injuries. I wouldn't be surprised if a similar statistic is true here. But we don't know, because they say they don't know who all the, what happened to everybody. And even when you get a coroner's report, sometimes, and this is true in in other aspects as well, if there's any doubt that it, whether it's a suicide, there's a reluctance to put the label suicide on the death. What I've asked our group to do is to go into the community find out who's not there anymore, and then we're going to do our own study as to why they aren't there, what has happened to them, not only whether they've committed suicide, but whether they're dying on the streets of Vancouver or Halifax or wherever. There's, there's, there's people that are suffering all sorts of ways. And then we go, we go backwards. We say, okay, this is what happened, just as you did with the reference in Calgary. Why is it? Why is it that a that a veteran was driven to suicide? What frustrations did they have? What, what, what the advantage of going to trial is that we can have a finding of fact. You get when everything's in the political domain, and this isn't just this case in the United States. You can say anything, and you can spin anything. But you certainly, when you go to a trial, you have the advantage of having somebody say, "No, that's not true." And this, this is what we're worried about happening with the pension. If you have a pension that's not a pension, it's like having a, having a horse that, uh, and, and trying to pass a mouse off as a horse. Uh, and, but if, if you can spin it well enough so that people will believe that by providing a mouse you've given a horse, then uh, you can get away with it. Yeah, but, as you, but as, you, uh, as you say, when it comes to statistics, they don't have the ones that are most significant for people to know. I find that governments often have... 
uh, available to them only what is convenient for the government to be able to pass along. What is inconvenient for them to pass along somehow just hasn't been compiled maybe yet. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Here's an email from Mark to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. Roy, good morning. Quick point here. I'm getting very tired of Trudeau's running of this country. No social covenant with our soldiers, but we're going to have a social covenant with 300,000 immigrants a year. What a disgrace. It is a disgrace when our members of the military who put their lives on the line, many of them injured, many of them living with post-traumatic stress disorder, come back to this country and find themselves essentially essentially abandoned, and find themselves living homeless. And the government promises action soon. Mark Birchall is the president of the Equitas Society. Don Sorokin is the lawyer who took the case uh, through the B.C. Court of Appeal and will no doubt be staying with it. Mark, what's the message to the men and the women and their families, the men and women of the military, to their families who are confused by everything that's going on around them? Well, the message from Equitas, of course, is that, uh, as Don pointed out, we don't see this as a setback at all. This is a, uh, this is a normal part of the process, and we are 100% totally committed to achieving uh, our goal of lifelong pensions and a military covenant for uh, veterans. And the, the message that I guess that I want to send out to all veterans is that uh, when when we have a fragmented voice, we also have a fragmented message. And when we unite and we become one, then we uh, we have the the strength of that united voice with a united message to the government. And our message to the government is to that they need to stop spinning and speak straight to veterans. They stop. They have to stop using terms like option to mislead. They need to follow through on what uh, on what their promises are, and you know they need to demonstrate that they can be trusted. Because right now, uh, people that would consider signing up for Canada's military, they've got to be questioning that you know that that, that if the government doesn't have their back like they say they do, you know what can they believe when they sign up? Can they believe that if they're injured, they will they actually have a voice? Will they will they actually be taken care of? Right now, the government has demonstrated no, they can't be trusted. Yeah, less than a minute left, Don. Just the idea of uh, a lifelong pension being in question is bizarre. People need that level of support before they can be expected to sign up to put their life on the line. They have to know that if they're killed in action, uh, and the action could be in UN uh, uh, peacekeeping activities. We've seen this last week. A record number of peacekeepers were killed. So if you put your life on the line for our country in whatever type of service, we should stand behind you. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. And uh, we'll stay on this with you and keep up to date, keep our listeners up to date on what's going on. Mark Birchall, Don Sorokin, thank you both. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. All right, so uh, let me read you an email before I do anything else, because this typifies what I'm seeing. I'm not picking on anybody yet, but I just want to read, because I'm getting irritated with the whole old question about Roy Moore, because I know what it's about, and I've tweeted it and I've said it. But I got this email from Jack. He writes, uh, you don't think Mr. Moore should be elected as senator in the U.S.? 
Please explain what facts you have to support your opinion. I've seen no proof of anything, only unsubstantiated accusations and recanted stories. So you weren't listening to what I've been saying. Clearly, you don't believe the women who accuse Roy Moore of sexual impropriety with them when they were teenage girls. I guess when... uh, Judge Moore said America was great during slavery. That's that's okay. Eh? Uh, L.A. Times reported in September during a rally, Moore was asked by an African-American man in the audience when he thought America was last great. Moore responded by saying, quote, I think it was great at the time when families were united even though we had slavery. They cared for one another. Our families were strong. Our country had a direction. Nah, that's not that's, that's not important. That's that's okay. Hey, hey Jack, that's, that's not 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 a problem. Yeah, evolution taught in school leads to drive-by shootings. Yeah, well, what else have we got here? Oh, anyway. So we have that. It's not important. No, it's not important. Then we have uh, Republican uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Said he believes the women quoted in the Washington Post story, he urges Moore to step aside in light of the allegations. Previously, McConnell had said Moore should step aside if the allegations are true. Senator Cory Gardner, uh, the National Republican Senatorial Committee chairman, said on Monday that he believes the women who have alleged Moore's misconduct in a statement he encouraged the Senate to vote to expel Moore should he win the election next month. These are Republican senators. He does not meet the ethical and moral requirements of the United States Senate, said Senator Gardner from Colorado. Uh, Senator Mike Lee from Utah, a former backer of Moore, pulled his endorsement from Moore after the allegations came to light. Having read the detailed description of the incidents as well as the response from Judge Moore and his campaign, I can no longer endorse his candidacy for the U.S. Senate. It goes on and on. These are... Republicans, Senator Susan Collins from Maine, very familiar name, called for Moore to withdraw from the Senate race in Alabama. She wrote, um, I have now read Mr. Moore's statement and listened to his radio interview in which he denies the charges. I did not find his denials to be convincing and believe that he should withdraw from the Senate race in Alabama. But I... And also, why should we believe these women? Right? Why? I'm sure they have an agenda. I'm sure that they've all been put in place by the Democrats to keep poor Roy out of the uh, out of the Senate. I was looking at a story from the New Yorker. Um, yeah, let's see me now. In this town in Alabama where he was a district attorney, the general knowledge, this is what a police officer said, the general knowledge at the time when I moved here was that this guy is a lawyer cruising the mall for high school dates. The legal age of consent in Alabama is 16, so it would not be illegal there for a man in his early 30s to date a girl who was, say, a senior in high school. But these officers, along with other people I spoke to, wrote the reporter, said that Moore's presence at the mall was regarded as a problem. I was told by a girl who worked at the mall that he'd been run off from there from a number of stores. 
maybe not legally banned, but run off. He also said, I heard from one girl who had to tell the manager of a store at the mall to get more to leave her alone. It's okay, though, eh? Yeah. What's wrong with the what's wrong with the what's wrong wrong with a man in his thirties harassing a teenage girl, high school girl? What's wrong with that? Then there was the, uh, the that goes on and on and on. This at the time, at the very time, the Silence Breakers were named Times Person of the Year, and the Me Too campaign continues to gain momentum. The hashtag Me Too campaign. So, does Roy Moore, where's that mouse, uh, does Roy Moore belong in the U.S. Senate? Not a chance, is my point of view. Let me say hello to two of my friends, who are former members of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and they are well known in this country because they stood up against the sexual harassment, sexual assault that they were put through, and they were doubted as well. What a surprise. Catherine Galliford, formerly the, the voice on the face of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and Krista Carley. Um, I don't know what to ask you. I, I, I just, I don't, because I, I don't get it why anybody, I understand that it's politics, but why are people so passionately engaged with getting this guy into the Senate when they, they don't know anything about him other than, not, nobody can refute what I just said because they don't know anything about him. So, please, Catherine, why don't you start us off? Well, I, quite frankly, I don't really know what to say, but um, since the formation of the Trump administration, I'm constantly being surprised. So um, it's actually become almost like a reality show that's actually real. With regard to um, the Alabama election, I believe it's on Tuesday, I think one of the things that's missing are the stories of the victims. They've, they've tried to come forward, and they've tried to tell their stories with regard to what happened, but they're almost being overshadowed by the ego and the arrogance of the candidates. And so it's almost as if their stories are getting lost in here. Now, um, albeit, um, he has not been convicted or found guilty of anything. But as long as his accusations against him are hanging in the air and being left unaddressed, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens um, following the election. Yeah. Krista, uh, you know, I, I, I recognize what uh, Catherine has said. He hasn't been convicted of anything, but nobody, at least on this program, we haven't brought that up. We haven't said it has anything to do with a, with a, with a, with a court decision at this juncture. It's a, it's a morality question, and it's what we believe as individuals we want to set as a standard for somebody who's going to be representing us in government. And it, do we believe the women, or do we believe Roy Moore? Well, I think I've trying to make it clear where I stand. Well, you know, and I think it's, it's not unlike what we've seen in our country. It's a lack of leadership. You know, it's just, it's it, even the slightest allegation it's, it's you, you, you cannot be in a position of power where you have more power uh, unless you have, I mean, you enter the public life for a reason, and your life becomes public. And if there's an allegation, you know, especially if there are multiple, multiple uh, uh, victims in this case, um, it, it's simply, it's not rocket science. You, you can't have that person proceed. 
And when you see, when you hear the, the Republican senators say the very thing, this very same thing, and one of the leaders in the Senate for the Republicans says, if he gets in, we should take a vote to kick him out. Yeah, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's a, it's a ridiculous waste of taxpayers' dollars and the pomp and ceremony that goes with uh, getting into the Senate. And then I'm sure he'd probably still get a Senate pension. I mean, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't exactly, you know, I'm saying that sort of flippantly. But uh, it, it's just, it's just, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I don't want to see the Democrats run the United States government. I've seen eight years of that under Barack Obama, and I didn't like what I saw. And I'm a, I'm a conservative philosophically. I'm a conservative person. And I, but but I, I don't want somebody like Roy Moore representing my philosophy, even from a distance. Um, <clears throat> so do we believe? Do we believe the women? Well, one of the things I would like to say that I've noticed uh, during the last few months is that a lot of people are extremely um, meshed within their political party, and regardless of what you have to say about the running candidate. They're not voting for the candidate. They are voting for that party. And so it's extremely unfortunate that the Republicans have this individual, Mr. Moore, running for the Senate right now. Will he be elected? Who knows? But at the end of the day, these allegations have been made against him, and they are at some point going to have to be dealt with. So whatever position he is in, at the time those allegations are being dealt with, is realistically a moot point. Because mm-hmm. these women have already come forward, so they are going to have to be dealt with. Yeah, and if you look at the state of Alabama, there should be no question who's going to win the Senate seat. It shouldn't be an issue. But the people of Alabama are making it an issue because they don't clearly have much trust in Roy Moore because there's only a two-point lead for him in the Senate race now. It should be much more. It should be the Hillary Clinton shout, why am I not 10 points ahead? So, I thank you both, as always, for uh, taking time to talk to me. Oh, it's such a pleasure to talk to you, Roy. You're very welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks so much. Uh, Catherine Galliford and Krista Carley, former RCMP officers. So when you've got Susan Collins, very well-known, and there's a, a woman senator... Very well-known, very powerful member of the Senate in the United States. And she tweeted, I have now read Mr. Moore's statement and listened to his radio interview in which he denies the charges. I did not find his denials to be convincing, and I believe that he should withdraw from the Senate race in Alabama. Doesn't matter. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Okay, now, uh, the Middle East Forum, I just want to read you something from the, that I see from the Middle East Forum, so you know what they're about. Uh, the Middle East Forum, a think tank established in 1994 to promote American interests in the Middle East. The Forum helped to found this year both the Knesset and Congressional Victory Caucuses, which have earned the support of Benjamin Netanyahu and key members of the U.S. Congress. The Forum's director, Greg Roman, has just published an article on the symbolic move of the U.S. Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And Mr. Roman joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Greg, uh, thank you for having uh, the time to, to, to spend with us. And uh, what, what do you make of the reaction in the Middle East and uh, in certainly in uh, predominantly Muslim countries 
to the announcement by the uh, the Trump administration. And now foreign ministers of Arab countries today are calling on the administration to reverse the decision. Roy, thank you for having me today. It's a beautiful Sunday here in Philadelphia. And I have to tell you that today America and its allies in the region can be certain that the president that's in office is going to follow up on the promises that he made on the campaign trail, something that people aren't used to politicians keeping their word. Um, I think that the effects of this move are tertiary in nature to what is actually the, the, the greater strategy that Trump has in the Middle East. Foreign ministers, the UN Security Council, uh, Arab League, other international organizations, and the Palestinians themselves have had the peace paradigm flipped on its head, where in the past, Many of the individuals involved in the Israeli-Palestinian negotiating process expected the Israelis to give and the Palestinians to take. This you still there? Declare what they're willing to do for peace. Uh, you write in uh, in part here that uh, individual Palestinians surely want the conflict to end, but collectively they seem convinced that their choices include only accepting Israel and coexisting, or rejecting Israel and eradicating it. So this move of the embassy to Jerusalem long-term, then, you see it as a, a move which is going to ultimately be a positive move? I do, because in the past, you had U.S. diplomatic posturing being a bargaining point, a reward for Palestinians in any future peace agreement. However, the more that the U.S. takes steps that create facts on the ground in Israel regarding their binary bilateral relationship with the Jewish state, the less that the Palestinians feel that they can trick America into making concessions or Israel into concessions. I'll, I'll give you an example. Back on the White House lawn in 1994, remember that notorious handshake between Yasser Arafat, Yitzhak Rabin, Shimon Peres, with Bill Clinton presiding over it, that was supposed to lead to peace in five years. What it led to was over $20 billion in American aid supplanting a kleptotheocracy over the last 23 years, and we're no closer to peace today than we were on the White House lawn. That was when America was taking a position of being a neutral arbiter. When America takes a stance by saying, this is our policy position and this is what you have to gain, the choice goes from being one of an American nature to that of being a Palestinian nature. Do they want to live side by side with Israel, receive significant economic benefits, receive a polity, a culture, a society that's based on what it means to be Palestinian in terms of accepting their own self-identity, rather than having their identity based on rejecting Israel? Because that's the way that the situation is right now. They exist almost purely politically, say, our one purpose in life is to ensure that no Jews can live side by side with us versus living for the sake of a future a, a betterment of their children and then of a country called Palestine. So, so, so in the short in the short term in the short term in the short short term then Greg there'll be conflict uh, that's to be expected uh, because of this decision, but in the long term, it'll prove to be beneficial. You also write that 20% of Palestinians already accept Israel as a, as a, as a Jewish state, um, and they should be empowered, you write. I only have about a, I have less than a minute left. I tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly more supportive 
of a democratic state than of any other kind of, of governance, and Israel is the only democratic state in that region in the world. So we need our, our, our current prime minister in this country seems to be a little soft on Israel. Mr. Harper previously was more strong on Israel. Greg, thank you very much for the time. We'll have you back. Thank you. Have a great day. All the best. Greg Roman is the executive director of the Middle East Forum. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. It was just under two years ago that we received a call from a listener to this program. His name is Larry. And I was thinking, trying to remember what it was we were talking about on the air. Maybe he remembers. We'll talk to him in just a minute. But at that time, Larry told us that he had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And that's the cancer that Patrick Swayze had and that uh, Michael Landon had. And um, very famous very famous people have battled pancreatic cancer. And uh, I stayed in touch with Larry after that phone call periodically. We'd have a phone conversation or exchange an email. And uh, so I received a, an email from Larry about... I think it was about two weeks ago. And he informed me in that email that he'd just been given news by his doctors. And it's also news that he would prefer not to have received. And he doesn't believe it's news that should be being given by uh, doctors to to patients. Hey, Larry, it's good to talk to you. Um, I, I had a difficulty believing it's been almost two years since we talked, but it has been. And uh, thank you for getting to, in touch with me, and and uh, let's let's talk about this this issue and 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 it and how it matters to you what one has actually been talked told you by doctors. Uh, how are you feeling today? Um, not too bad, Roy. Um, it's one of my better days. Uh, I have to, I have to correct. I have to correct you here just for a, a second. You say it's news that I didn't want to hear. Um, that's incorrect. Um, I knew I was going to get that news. Uh, what what I was getting at what I was getting at was uh, uh, people should not know when they're going to die. Okay. So nobody should just generically we shouldn't know. Yes. Uh, I've heard people say that they would like to know when they are going to okay, die. Okay, okay, I understand um, now. Yeah, so they can say their goodbyes and get their affairs in order. Yeah. Um, to me, that's that's selfish. Um, they have myself, for example. I'm thinking about the people around me. How are they going through this? I'm I'm the one with the disease. I'm the one that's going to die. Yes, but the people around me are suffering as well. Oh, yes. Larry, uh, I have to ask this question. I don't like doing it, but your doctors told you what about about your prognosis? Um, basically, I'm, I'm going to be lucky to see March. They said, they said there's good news and bad news. Good news is I'm going to see Christmas. Uh, and basically anything after that is a bonus. Okay. Yeah. Now, I, I, sorry, go ahead. 
I, I knew that was coming. I was expecting that. That was nothing new to me. And you were okay with doctors giving you that particular information? I've, I've, told, I've had uh, two oncologists and my GP, and my GP has known for years, uh, I, want, uh, I want nothing sugar-coated. Okay. Then I misunderstood. So it's generically you think it's better for people not to know when they're going to die, as opposed yes. to people who say, you know, I'd like to know when I'm going to die so that I can do what I need to do before then. Yes. Like, your affairs should be in order anyway, unless you're a young person uh, and young people uh, are going to live forever, if you ask any of them. Yeah. Um, but for the, the average person, um, I, I, I just think it's unfair. Because let, let's, say I, let's say I go um, in March. I've got another four months of, and there's no other word for it, suffering. Uh, and all of my family and friends for the past uh, two years, and speaking of two years, I was one of the lucky ones that was caught early, but they've been suffering as well. When I'm gone, my suffering is over. Theirs is going to continue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very much so. So, I, I just want to understand, uh, you're okay with the doctor telling you now, but if, he, if the doctors had told you two years ago that, uh, well, Larry, it's over in two years, that would have not been what no. you wanted to hear. No. Okay. But pancreatic cancer, I knew enough about it that I knew that, uh, um, you know, there is no cure. That's that's uh, a fact. Uh, it just depends on how long how long you last. You know, there are so many people who will be listening to this program now, who have cancer, or have a loved one who has cancer, or knew someone who did have cancer, or someone who is going through what your family is going through. This this disease attacks essentially the whole population of the country in one way or another. And I, I read some information, I think people will remember, it was a few months ago, there was some information that came out that suggested that 50% of people in Canada will have a direct a direct contact with with cancer. Um, how, how have you felt emotionally as the battle went on? And we've talked about, you, you said we could talk about anything that, yep. that we want to talk about. And I think for the for the benefit of people who are listening, and I, I think it's wonderful you're doing this, because it will help people. It will help quite a few people uh, have an insight into how somebody who has fought this insidious disease for for almost two years now ha- has dealt with it and is continuing to deal with it. As you uh, and you know, my wife died just yes, just over two years ago from from the same disease and. So I can maybe fill in a, a blank here and there if there is one. Um, how have you dealt with it emotionally, and and how's your family reacted to what's happened to you along the way? Uh, my wife um, still hasn't accepted it. Um, she's she's taking it harder than I am. I, I I've accepted it, Roy. Uh, it's going to happen. So emotionally. Um, I guess the emotion part of it is gone now. Um, you know, I'm, I'm living one day at a time, a cliche, and uh, just trying to make the most out of, out of all of them. Mm-hmm. So you're very pragmatic about it. Uh, I'm a realist. 
excuse me, I'm a realist, and uh, I, I don't. I don't wish to give anybody, uh, everyone should have hope, but uh, there comes a point when, uh, you know, the hope is, it's just false hope. How, how, how can somebody arrive at that pragmatic state of mind? Because not everybody's going to be able to do that, where you say, this is the way it is, I have to accept what's going to happen. And then, as you say, you live every day. Was there was there something, uh, a moment, uh, an event, an occurrence that brought you to that realization and to that into that acceptance level? Not really. Um, yeah, there, there were times uh, when when we were talking uh, on the phone the last time. Um, it was upsetting. I've I've had my. Uh, I've had some very, very down days, uh, but once once the acceptance was there, uh, once the denial was gone and the acceptance was there, uh, I found it easier to I found it easier to get along every day. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML. I'm speaking with Larry, who's been battling pancreatic cancer for almost two years and has been told by his doctors he will live until, certainly until Christmas and and maybe until March. There's uh, There are a lot of questions people have, Larry, and I'll just go back to questions that I know that my wife and I had at the, at the beginning and questions that I get asked, and I'll ask them of you, uh, if you don't mind, for the, for the benefit of people who are listening. Yep. What do you, what do you want to share with people who have just been diagnosed with with cancer what do they need to know <clears throat> that's hard to answer yeah it is isn't um, it if, what do they need to know um like what do they prepare themselves for well i'm a pessimist by nature so that's um, what we were talking about yeah i'm the first I'm time you called yeah 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 so when when I was first diagnosed, I, I got a really bad flu, and my doctor suspected bronchitis. So he sent me for a, an X-ray and an ultrasound, and um, it came back. And he told me on our next meeting. Um, and as soon as he told me cancer, um, I expected the worst, um, but there was hope. Um, you, you have you have to keep hoping mm-hmm. until um, such time as as it becomes real as as such time as you're you're told that's it you know keep trying and the, and the hope makes your life better uh, it depends is it is it real hope or is it false hope uh, and it, again it depends on on what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. Myself, I wanted to hear the truth. Mm-hmm. Were, they good at, uh, were they good at that, at telling you the truth about everything that was, was happening? Yes. Yes. Um, again, uh, I didn't want anything sugar-coated. Right. Uh, I want the facts. Yeah. Now, go ahead. How would you recommend that people deal with their cancer team, with their oncology team? Because there's a lot of people that become involved in your life. 
and they all have different specialties, and they all have different approaches, and they meet as a team, and they talk about you. And then usually somebody is just going back to what our experience was. There's one or two people who are sort of deputized who come and tell you the, the news that they all were discussing. So how would you how would you advise people to deal with the doctors and the nurses who are who are who are uh, taking care of their care? As much information as possible. Yeah. Um, if they've come in to look, uh, uh, there were complications during my surgery, so it was supposed to be a six-day stay in hospital. That six-day stay turned into uh, 40 days. And uh, over the next nine months, I spent a total of seven and a half months in the hospital uh-huh. because of complications. Um, but I wanted as much information as possible. So if they came in, uh, if a team came in uh, checking up on on uh, my my diabetes, uh, I wanted someone from that team to let me know. I didn't want a, a go between. Mm-hmm. Good. That's very sad. Uh, so people should be insistent on getting to talk to the specific doctors and nurses they want to talk to about what's going on. Not yes. just not just a spokesperson. Yeah, definitely. What definitely. The, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, what was the most challenging treatment that you had? Uh, Would it be the chemo? No, actually. Um, most challenging treatment. Um, the most... Uh, oh, how to put it. The most uh, uh, uncomfortable treatment, I guess, was was the portable IV I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wore a portable IV uh, for two different kinds of antibiotics uh, for about six months at home here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was very uncomfortable. Um, having the stents put in. Uh, basically, everything was uncomfortable, but nothing really stood out. Okay. Okay, but you didn't give uh, you didn't give hope, hope. I mean, you had you say you were a pessimist, but you had some you had some positive feelings about what was going on and what they were doing for you. Uh, there's always chemo, mm-hmm. um, like uh, tough, eh? There are, there are people I, I've heard of people that oh they were diagnosed with pancreatic cancer uh, thirty years ago and they're still alive. Well, it couldn't have been pancreatic cancer because I believe the longest person to last is uh, uh, Patrick Swayze at seven years. Was it seven uh, years? Yeah, yeah. And 95% of the people diagnosed with it um, die, within the, die within the first year. What are you capable of doing now physically? Uh, I still get out and about. Uh, I'm getting weaker. I've lost uh, a lot more weight. Um, I'm down now to about 110 pounds from the 150 that I was originally. Uh, At one point, I was down to 85 pounds, uh, but I was able to put that back on. But uh, uh, generally, I'm just getting weaker every day. I'm still able to get out and and, uh, drive and so on and so forth. Um, Going up and down the stairs now, um, is more difficult. It's becoming a challenge. Yeah. Have they uh, told you how long you can stay at home? My wife, 
um, and I disagree. Uh, she wants uh, the palliative care here at home, but um, I, I really don't want to put her through that from what I've heard uh, towards the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really don't want to have to put my wife through that. Yeah. She, she's been through enough as it is already. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. Um, Larry, you're, uh, you're, you're really quite an amazing person, and I mean that. In, uh, I really mean that. Conversations we've had, the emails we've exchanged, the, just the, uh, what, I've, what I've learned from you and um, what I've gleaned from, from your conversations and the emails, it's going to stay with me for a long, long time. And I appreciate our conversations, and I appreciate you coming on the show. And let's, uh, well, I'll, I'll give you a call. I'll give you a call right around Christmas. Is that all right? Yeah, that's fine. Oh, I just wanted to let you know, yeah. uh, Paul Henderson did phone. Oh, good. Yeah, I got in uh, touch with Paul, yeah. Yeah, shortly after uh, I was talking to you, Paul yeah. Henderson did phone. It was, it was kind of a... He put me in a better mood. Great, great. He's a super guy. Super guy. Okay. Thank thank you, Larry. We'll stay in touch. Thank you, Roy. Okay. You have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.